0: Here at Cosmosdale, our church confession is the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And I thought by by way of introducing our passage tonight to consider some sentences from chapter 3 of the confession. It's on God's decree. And he says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the wise and holy counsel of his own will. And unchangeably, freely, all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet so as thereby God is neither the author of sin, nor hath fellowship with any therein, but nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. This is a statement establishing the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of his creatures. Later in the confession in chapter 5, divine providence A citation from that. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. When we read things about the might of the Lord, and the rule of the Lord, and the providence of the Lord, we see that statements like this are trying to summarize what we find in the Word of God taught. It is is important in our lives to reckon with the Scripture's teaching about the rule and might of God in His creation. The Bible does not teach a deistic view of God, where God creates the world, sets it in motion, and then just sort of stands remotely from it. But rather, in the goodness and wisdom of God, We have the sovereignty of God pervading all things, exercising it providentially in the world he has made and for the good of his people. When when we read chapter 16 verses 1 to 9, these proverbs are insisting upon us the dual teachings throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. When we read the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, we will find out that we are not permitted in the Word to let go of one in order to hold on to the other, that we would ignore or even minimize the sovereignty of God because we want to pay attention to the will of man, nor are we permitted to deny the willfulness of His creatures in order to uphold the sovereignty of God. Both of those would be errors. Instead, we want to humbly come before the Word of God And come to the Lord with a a plea. Lord, teach us what it is true of you in all that you have made. What does it mean that you are God? And I think that these paragraphs from the 1689 Confession, they echo what people have confessed throughout church history elsewhere, summarizing that the Bible teaches genuine responsibility of sinners and the total sovereignty of God over all that he has made. So we come before the word of God and before God himself, and we say, Lord, we then want to receive all that you've revealed in your word about what you are like and about what creatures are like. And in verses one to three, the sovereignty of God over human planning is on the mind of Solomon. And he is teaching his son about these truths, not to, I think, undermine thinking ahead, or making plans. But just to remind that all plans that are made are done in a world we do not rule. And that, that, that slice of truth in history in which we live, we recognize how much we do not control. I've said before, and I really believe this, that if all of our earlier plans and desires and preferences in our earlier years had gone the way we had imagined, you and I probably would not end up in this very room together tonight. Because of where we imagined ourselves living or what we would be doing, or and you, you realize, you realize that man makes his plans, the plans of the heart. In verse one, and in verses one through three, human planning and divine sovereignty. It begins with talking about how deliberation in the heart or what's what's going on plans in the heart belong to man. But the answer of the tongue, I take this to be what ends up happening, what ends up being the case. There was a plan and then there ends up being the plan that is put together and executed. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. This seems to emphasize the sovereignty of God over the plans and the heart that therefore confounds the wisdom of the world. We are reminded in our weakness and in human tragedy and suffering that you and I are not in control. Many parts of the Word of God remind us of this. Chapter 16, verse 1, calls us to humble ourselves before the Lord who is mighty over all things and we are not that and therefore we have our plans... We have plans for our lives. We've got plans for others' lives. And yet we are not in control of actualizing those things. In fact, when we consider our plans, that's not the only thing going on in our hearts. And we're told in verse 2 that all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. The reason people make plans is because they have desires. They've got motives. Some kind of ambition for something. So the plan is an overflow of something within them. And they're deliberating and they're weighing this or that. And in fact, they might reflect on their heart. They might think about the plans they want and it seems great. They think, listen, you know, the reasons I want this and and how I want it to come about, I I see nothing wrong. So all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. I think he's saying in principle here, when, when people have plans they want to execute and you ask them about it, they, they would perhaps insist that, listen, this is above board. My plans are pure. My ways in my eyes, everything looks great. One writer puts it this way, that people may seem innocent in their own estimation. They think about their motives and they're like, I think this is fine. What I want to do and the reasons for it. The last part of the verse says, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Which is suggesting to us that a deeper evaluation is going on and weighing brings to mind scales. And you might think, well, listen, if I put my motives, this is how I would calculate it. But you see, when the Lord weighs our hearts, we can realize that we don't see ourselves as clearly as we think we do. Verse two opens up for us the category that is elsewhere in the Bible as well. The category of self-deception. And somebody might say, well, I don't think I'm deceived. Well, of course you don't. (laughs) I mean, self-deception by its very nature would indicate that we can be operating in a way with our heart and mind, our lives and actions, our conduct, our paths, where we are not as deeply aware or clear about our hearts as we think we are. This is one of the effects of sin in a fallen world. One of the effects of sin is you don't know your heart like you might think you do. In fact, the one who knows us, the one who weighs the Spirit, how could it be any other than God himself? So all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. This is the contrast between self-estimation and divine evaluation. And in verse 2, self-estimation is susceptible to self-deception. The Lord weighs the Spirit. It is possible... For us to pursue and desire to have ambition for and motive towards something that the Lord has weighed and has evaluated. And for our own good, therefore, he will prevent our desires from coming to pass. Something like self-deception is a possibility. If our plans in the heart belong to man, and yet we are not sovereign, like verse 1 says, and even our motives could be hidden entirely from us, or at least not as clear to us, and God alone knows it, what is it that we should do with our desires and with our plans? Well, verse 3 is the answer. I'm glad you asked. Verse 3, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. I don't think this is a promise that in some blanket kind of way, the Lord says, listen, whatever you want, you just come to me and I'll get it like a genie out of a lamp. No. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. We know that the plans of man are not the things that the Lord will just at the beck and call of creatures actualize. Verse 1 tells us that plans in the heart belong to a man, but the answer, the result from the Lord, the outcome may be different. So we know verse 1 is going to help us interpret verse 3. Verse 3 is a statement about committing your work to the Lord. It's an imperative, isn't it? Verse 1 is an observation. Verse 2 is an observation. Verse 3 is a command in light of these observations. What should we do when we can't read accurately our own hearts? And when we are not sovereign in the world with all of our great plans? We come before the Lord... We commit our hearts and works and deeds to him, our plans to him. And we trust the plans to be established in the wisdom and goodness of God. Maybe not plans in the way we would have imagined them in timing and degree and order to be. But committing work to the Lord, it it probably sounds like the following. Lord, this is something upon my heart and mind. And so as I'm praying to you, Lord, about this, I pray that your will would be done in my life and that you would guide my steps. And that you would give me wisdom. And that you would help me think about this. Because I want to do what is glorifying and honoring to you. And maybe it would even sound like, Lord, if what I'm desiring to do, and if this pursuit and path before you, if this would not be good for my heart and soul. If this would not bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you obstruct my way. It's quite a bold statement, but I think... it. Our prayers can kind of sound like that when we take verse 3 seriously. I want to commit what I'm doing to the Lord. Commit your work to the Lord. And your plans will be established. You know what verses 1-3 to can't mean then? Verses 1-3 to can't mean, well you know what, since God is sovereign, what's the point of planning anything? I mean, verse 3 says, you should commit those things to the Lord. Which means... You're thinking, you're planning, you're desiring, you're consulting. You've got got something you're envisioning, but you know you're not God. So you know what you do? You come humbly before God. Verse 3 helps us see that in light of verses 1 through 3, we are not not prohibited from thinking about the future and making projections and making plans. Aren't we reminded perhaps of James chapter 4? Which tells us, don't boast about tomorrow. We recognize that we are like a mist that is here for a while and then vanishes. So James says that, that when we're, we're uh, thinking about the future, we say, Lord, if it is Your will, if it is Your will, we will go to this city or that city and make money or do this or go there. And for how long? We recognize that we are contingent beings. We are those derived We are those dependent on the greatness and glory and strength and power of God. He holds our very breath in his hand. Verses 1-3 to are about sovereignty and human planning. And sovereignty doesn't cancel out human planning. Rather, human planning is done in submission to divine sovereignty. But the reason this is good news is because of what the Scriptures teach about the character of God. We, do need, we need not fear as believers that God is sovereign over all things because we know what the scriptures teach about God. What we're doing then is holding multiple things in view at the same time. We're affirming that the sovereignty of God and that the God who is sovereign over all things is altogether righteous and holy. There is none wiser than God and there is none from whom he needs counsel for any of his judgments. That he sees perfectly all things in heaven and earth and will do what is always just. And even as his mercy and long-suffering and compassions are displayed, while we may not presume upon those things, we gladly receive from God the undeserved demonstrations of his loving kindness and benevolence to the world he has made. A world he made not because he needed to. A world he made not because he was deficient but a world He made that He might love and pour out upon His goodness and blessing. We can hear the command of verse 3 and we can think, well, to whom else would I want to commit all my work? To whom else would I want to come with all of my heart and plans who knows me and loves me and works for my good? Of course, I should commit all that I do to the Lord. In verses 4 and 5, the sovereignty of the Lord includes his act of judgment. In verses 4 and 5, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. I think verses 4 and 5 continue to affirm the sovereignty of God. But while the sovereignty of God is a comfort to the people of God, the sovereignty and might of God over all things ought to terrify the unrighteous. Because they recognize that they are living against the one for whom and by whom all things are made. The one in whose hand is their very breath. And so he says at the beginning of verse four, the strong claim that the Lord has made everything for its purpose. Which means there is both design and order and certain ends for which God is exercising power and sovereignty and providence in the world. And the wicked are not exempt from this. In fact, their own appointed day of judgment has been set. I think that's what is meant by the end of verse four. The wicked for the day of trouble. The day of their trouble is not just some mere earthly affliction, but it's the day of their judgment. And I think it is implied also with verse 5, if you look at 4 and 5 together. Verse 5 talks about the wicked here as the arrogant in heart. They are the self-exalted ones. They lift themselves up in their own souls before God. They don't lift up the Lord. They don't praise His name. They don't love His word. In heart, they are the center of the world. They are living in an anti-God path. They are living as if reality bends to their will. That they will exert all of their striving and all of their wicked planning and all of their rebellious path. And they will make things happen by their own conspiring. But the Lord is repulsed by such an unrighteous person. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he says. Be assured. What a preface to the following claim. You can you can count on this, he's saying. The end of verse five says, Be assured he will not go unpunished. So if I'm taking verses four and five together, the wicked for the day of trouble, even the sovereignty of God over their judgment, should be something we can recognize. And that the punishment of the wicked at the end of verse five is like that day of trouble. They cannot hide from the Lord, and they will defy him in vain. For despite all of their great planning and all of their arrogant pursuits, they run against the reality that they are not God. They think they're invincible and that their ungodliness will repay them all the gain they're hoping to have. But the day of trouble and their punishment under the divine righteous sovereignty of God is a reality we are warned about in verses 4 and 5. We see then human planning and divine sovereignty, verses 1 to 3, Divine judgment on the wicked as a sovereign act of God in verses 4 and 5. And then we see divine blessing on the righteous in verses 6 to 8. While the Lord acts with judgment upon the wicked, His sovereignty and providence toward His people is for their good. Verses 6 to 8 explain this. Divine blessing of the righteous. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him, and betters a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Verses 6 to 8 are reflecting on the blessing of God, and we open verse 6 with language about steadfast love and faithfulness. There are two ways this verse in the opening words here are taken. First is that steadfast love and faithfulness would belong to the Lord. So the idea here in this view would be, by God's steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. The other way of taking it is that steadfast love and faithfulness belong to the worshiper of Yahweh. This is something that is characterized, the life of the faithful, in Psalms and Proverbs and elsewhere. That the people of God and following God begin to imitate the character of God, and they are those marked by steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness, by that, iniquity is atoned for, and by fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Now, the hesitancy that some interpreters have had from taking steadfast love and faithfulness as belonging to human beings is the last part of that first line. That by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. So the, the instinct might seem to be, well, then obviously we've got, we've got to be talking about divine love and faithfulness here. Because it's talking about atoning for iniquity. And, and talking about human steadfast love and faithfulness, that would sound too much like, like our works leading to atonement. Now, my leaning is that when I take all of verse 6, by fear of the Lord... Fear of the Lord is what is residing in the worshiper of Yahweh. By that, one turns away from evil. The whole of the verse, in my leaning here, is that steadfast love and faithfulness are what characterize the worshiper of Yahweh also. But I don't think that needs to imply works salvation or justification or pardon based on my works. And interpreters who see this steadfast love and faithfulness, as well as fear of the Lord, as being in the heart of the worshiper, here's what they say. And I think this is the right way to look at it. Steadfast love and faithfulness is a sign of one's inward faith and trust in God. Because atonement in the Old Testament is connected with this sacrificial system. They come to the tabernacle. They come later to the temple. Solomon is the builder of the temple. He knows what it is for people to be concerned about sin and relationships, about their vertical relationship with God and their horizontal relationship with neighbor and bringing offerings to deal with their guilt and iniquity. And what marks their life is inward faith And outward acts of devotion and obedience that look like steadfast love and faithfulness. So I take verse 6 to sound the same way in the letter of James. That faith without works is dead, but in James's emphasis, he emphasizes the outward works to demonstrate our declared state before God. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, not because steadfast love and faithfulness are the grounds of it, but that is the kind of life trusting the Lord, anchored in God as a refuge. So I think the first line is difficult. But steadfast love and faithfulness need not belong just to God, but also to the people of God, just like the second part that I take as parallel. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. What is it then behind someone's steadfast love and faithfulness? Why do they live in covenant obedience to the Lord? Why are they on a path following God? Here's the answer at the end of verse 6. They fear God. There it is. They fear the Lord. Why is it that they turn away from evil? Why is it that they're concerned about their iniquity? What drives it is their heart's posture toward God. They fear the Lord. That is coupled with trust in God and faith in God. He is our refuge like the Psalms abundantly portray. By fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Now you might be able to give all sorts of practical reasons for someone to turn from wickedness. You can say, well, you know what? If you don't turn from wickedness, here's the sort of thing you might face in this life, and here's the kind of consequence you'd want to avoid. And those things, those are even concerns of the book of Proverbs, which warns us about earthly snares that entrap us in paths of folly. However, the foremost and deepest reason... That the Bible gives us to turn from evil, which would mean to repent of sin and to trust in God and to be concerned about our sin and guilt and to come before God as our refuge. What ought to drive that is the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. And Proverbs says that's the fear of the Lord. This is what keeps us from evil. This is what prompts us to pursue holiness. This is what gives us renewed concern about paths of rebellion and folly. This is what incentivizes us, Lord willing, most deeply. It is our love to honor and revere God that is at the root of our obedience. We're not trying to earn the love of God. We're not trying to get into his good graces. We know that God alone is God and he's sovereign over all that he's made and over the righteous and the wicked. And we want the blessing of God and the love of God and we want to walk in pleasing ways to God. So he continues in verse 7. Saying when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I think the ways in verse 7 are about those things in verse 6. The creatures and worshippers steadfast love and faithfulness and fear of the Lord. That pleases the Lord. When we want to desire the Lord, when we are faced with temptation and snares and we could go this way and this way and we recognize what is it that honors God? How can I bring glory to God? What is it that would be pleasing to God? We want our ways to conform to that. When a man's ways please the Lord, the Lord is kind and gracious and unexpected things can result. Look in verse 7 here. Even he, may, he even makes his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, just as is the case in Proverbs, these are not blanket promises. We obviously recognize exceptions to this. But sin causes hostility socially. We're not thinking about sin as only what affects our relationship with God. We recognize horizontally, sin creates difficulty in relationships. And when we seek to please the Lord, we can be delighted when our love for God and love for neighbor helps relationships that at one point were quite hostile and oppositional. I mean, perhaps you've been in the situation yourself where you have been at odds with people and you have had tensions in relationships that you recognized at one point were no longer the case and it was glory be to God for that change because what God was doing in you and through you and in that relationship was a manifestation of power and gospel that is not to your merit at all. We recognize this can't be a blanket statement. Because how would this square even with the life of the Lord Jesus? I mean, let's be honest. Read the Gospels. The man's enemies just being at peace. If the man's ways please the Lord. Well, surely there is no one who's ever lived. than the incarnate Lord Jesus whose ways have pleased the Lord. And yet even in the life of the Lord Jesus to fulfill all the law. And his words, heart, and mind, and actions. All doing what is conforming to perfect Righteousness. Well, certainly all of his enemies were not at peace with him. But it does recognize that in our pursuit of holiness and obedience, surprising things can result in a horizontal level. That as we seek to follow God and live peacefully, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God, we can find surprising relational health resulting as we seek to do what is honoring to God. Because maybe... Some of the hostility and opposition and tension with others was our fault. Maybe at some point it was our words or our actions or our neglect or whatever it was that helped us stir and stimulate that. And then we come to learn better and to do better. And that through our words and actions, we want to bring about a different set of relationships God can be kind and gracious to supply them. We should pray for it. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. These ways, I think in form verse eight, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. You see, the ways that please the Lord are a way, the, the ways or paths that know what is better. And what's better is righteousness which means conforming one's words and actions to what would be honoring to God, for he is the standard as the creator of heaven and earth and the one altogether sovereign. I, I like that the complication of the proverb reads the way it does. It doesn't tell you better is a little than great revenues. That's not the way the verse reads. In fact, if you were to just look at two options, do I want just a little in terms of material things or do I want great revenues... Well, I would say 99 out of 100 votes are going to probably be, well, rather than a little, I would like great returns for what my work is. But the proverb doesn't read that way. And yet, from a worldly perspective, sometimes the calculation just stops there. That's the wisdom of Proverbs, therefore. Because if the wisdom of the world just looks at this and says, well, you know, what do you want? Do you want a little bit or do you want a lot? Do you want just a little? or And then you look at things from a worldly criteria... And now it's complicated in verse 8. Because the little what seems to be a meager amount is characterized in a life of faithfulness and devotion and what's honoring to God. That's what it means to have righteousness with the little. And then the great revenues, well, you see people can people can acquire much with unjust gain, right? They can they can seek Terrible ways of defrauding others and exploiting others and and trying to find loopholes in this or that so that they can get more and yet it's done unjustly. So here's the wisdom of the proverb that we not think about our lives with merely material criteria. He has spiritualized this so that we can see what matters more. Here's what matters more. What matters more is doing what is right, not having more. That's the honest truth about verse 8. So he's telling you what is better. Now, now the challenge for the reader is that you agree with this spiritual calculation. Because the world at large, especially without eyes to see and with no commitment to the word of God, they would look at this and say, a little is not better. Don't, don't give me that statement. The only reason you would believe better is a little with righteousness is if you truly trust the Lord in all things about your life. And you commit your ways to the Lord, just like verse 3 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Someone who says it is better to have little with righteousness is someone who fears the Lord. Rather than getting great revenues with injustice. Because someone who says better is great revenues with injustice is someone who doesn't fear the Lord. That's someone whose spiritual calculations, it's off. All they're concerned about is the material thing. Not loving God, not loving neighbor. They don't, they don't care if they violate the law of God. They don't care if what they do is against neighbor. They get great revenues. It doesn't matter if it's with injustice. Verse 8 challenges our priorities then, doesn't it? It lets us see... Living as God's image bearers in this world, is, is, it must be done to honor the Lord in such a way that we can't just look at the material question. We have to look more deeply and see that it's connected to spiritual concerns and priorities. Someone who believes, verse 8, is someone who fears the Lord. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Our passage tonight concludes with verse 9, and it returns to the opening concern. This is how we isolate this unit. Verses 1 through 3 and then verse 9 are all concerned with the theme of the sovereignty of God over human planning. The heart of man plans his way. Yes, he does. You sit and you dream and you think about your life. And you do so even from the youngest ages, and you just imagine what you'll be doing and where you'll be, and you think about people in your life, and and you have plans even for them. As adults, you think about these things, and you're contemplating and reflecting, and you're planning your way. That's such a normal thing to do. And yet, the Lord, the Lord establishes His steps which means while we think about the path that is before us, we are not in control of the future. We are not sovereign. And so verse 9 once again puts sovereignty of God over human planning. We plan, but we do so in deference toward and in humil- humble subjection to the sovereignty of God. We still plan nevertheless. In decision making, what if we asked questions like this? We come up against a decision. We could ask, first of all, does Scripture directly address what I'm facing? Like, is this some moral issue? Like, do I need to steal for this person or do I not? I'm not really sure what to do. Does Scripture address that? Well, it turns out it does. Thou shalt not steal. I just gave you the King James, in fact. Um, you, you shall not steal. That's ESV. And, and just a direct moral prohibition. So if I'm if I'm looking at a decision, here's some opportunity, here's what I'm thinking through, does scripture directly address it? And if scripture does directly address it, then obey the bible. We're not smarter than the bible. If scripture doesn't address it, then there are some other appropriate questions to ask because scripture doesn't always address directly the decisions we're trying to think through. So we could ask questions like, have I thought through how this might affect me spiritually? If I pursue this, if I do this, if I commit to this, how is this going to affect my heart? Am I considering my soul here? I could ask a question like, have I considered how this decision is going to impact others around me? Because it turns out I'm involved, not just as an individual, but in communal relationships with others. Friends and family and co-workers and others around me. Have I, have I considered that even if this seems good for me is this going to affect others around me in a way I've not thought about? So I have to ask that question. You could, you could ask this question. Am I inviting any wise counsel to help me think through this decision? And the, I emphasize wise counsel because there are just a lot of bozos around us. You know what I'm saying? Like you just, you, you know, I, Have I invited wise counsel? There are people who don't fear the Lord who would love to advise you on what to do. People who don't care about the Word of God and they're like, hey, I have a thought. here. You know, I think you should do this. I mean... You just don't want to weigh that very strongly. Have I considered wise counsel to help me think through the decision? Don't think you see every angle of the thing. Humble ourselves. We humble ourselves before the Lord and He is gracious in His providence to help us through the words of others. They ask a question and we think, I never considered that. I'm so glad I brought that up to them. They're helping, helping me think through this. You could ask a question. Have I given time to pray about this matter? Am I I being too rash here? Am I being too spontaneous? Am I rushing? I don't want to make a hasty decision. Or lastly, we could say, Am I prepared to trust the Lord if the outcome is different from what I wanted? Like if I'm going to commit my work to the Lord, and I'm going to trust that He's going to establish my steps even though I've got plans in my heart, Am I prepared to trust Him if things go differently? Because it's easy to trust the Lord when everything goes your way. We're challenged to really believe Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not just good things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose he reigns in sovereignty over all things you can commit all that you are to the lord with trust and rest in him and you can trust that the results of what god is doing in your life will be things you do not understand and will work all together for your deepest good. Let's pray.